Good afternoon and welcome to From Where We Are, stories of news and culture through the lens of USC and Southern California. I'm Jack Waterman, coming to you live from Studio B in USC's Annenberg Media Center. And I'm Julia McGowan. On today's show, how USC students plan to keep up the pressure to protest sexual assaults on campus. What's next for black television? And with Halloween just three days away, we send a love letter to horror films. While other children begged and pleaded for their parents to take them to Disneyland, I tried to convince my mother to take me to a cemetery. All that's and more from Where We Are. Uh, Halloween weekend is coming up. Do you have a Halloween costume? Thank you so much for asking. I have three. I have one for today, and I have okay. one for Friday. And I have one for Saturday, one with each of my respective roommates. Um, that's, can that's you top that? Can you top that? What are your costumes? Um, I currently do not have a Halloween costume. Oh, Jack! Kind of playing You're the... You're killing uh, me! I know, playing the card of, of I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see. <laughs> Well, before we can think about Halloween, we do have a radio show to do. All right, I guess so. Uh, USC's recent Greek life sexual assault scandal has ignited a heated reaction from many people on campus. Just last week, hundreds of students marched to Frat Row to denounce fraternities and rape culture. But as time goes on, will calls to change or establish fraternities die off? Jeremy Lindenfield has more. Groups on campus have been calling on USC officials to address fraternities even before recent allegations were leveled against members of Sigma Nu. Student, organizer, and activist Alyssa De La Rosa has been among the loudest voices calling for action. She has noticed an increasing number of students willing to stand up and make their voices heard. When students see that they're not alone and there's others that are organizing and there's others that are putting out a call for action, they're gonna join in. Delarosa's activism has largely focused on abolition of Greek life on campus. She believes ending fraternities is the only way to fix many problems at USC. Um, we're calling for an end just to the Greek life system in general because we recognize it's not just uh, the sexual assaults, it's the overall um, rape culture, misogyny, elitism, racism, transphobia, homophobia. Other activists like Eva Heinrichs, USC Flow's finance director, does not think abolition is a feasible or necessary goal. Instead, she and other reform advocates have focused some of their efforts on emphasizing that fraternities and their members should be held accountable for the toxic environments they may foster. In terms of accountability, I think it starts with individual Greek members learning how to hold each other accountable because they express that, like, they don't know how to respond in those situations. Like, at the end of the day, it is a systemic problem. It's part of the culture of Greek life. Um, and so changing that culture um, that upholds Greek culture, I think, is kind of the starting point. Though many similar activist movements often die off without resulting in any real change, Heinrichs and others are hopeful that this time may be different. I think that the fact that the faculty have gotten involved um, and they've been reaching out to student organizations and asking what can they do and even this upcoming March on Friday, I think that in and of itself is kind of a step further than a lot of um, movements or reactions get. Though activists are encouraged by increased student and faculty engagement, they recognize that more work needs to be done. 
They believe continued pressure on the university to address fraternities is necessary because many are not satisfied with the administration's actions. Activists like De La Rosa are worried that the movement will die down before substantive change is reached. As activists, it's heartbreaking. We know uh, that these things do sort of like die down. And again, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one of them being um, we put so much time, energy and effort, and yet the university um, still doesn't meet our demands. To keep the pressure on USC, groups on campus plan on continuing their organizing efforts. De La Rosa says that Abolish Greek USC will continue holding marches and protests, in addition to educational events that will inform students about abolition more broadly. For Annenberg Media, I'm Jeremy Lindenfeld. I guess now it's Sophia. Joining us now is Sofia Gonzalez from ATVN See It Live. Their show tonight will focus on sexual assault at USC as well as at other universities, high schools, and even countries. Please be advised, the following interview will contain mentions of sexual assault and harassment. Sophia, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Um, what will we learn on your show tonight about sexual assault at USC and elsewhere? So tonight on See It Live, we will most mostly than anything, we'll be expecting to see a diverse set of opinions about potential ways to support sexual assault survivors. We will also get resources for victims of sexual assault, both on and off campus, because it's not just happening at USC. It's happening also in Vanderbilt and East, East Michigan, just to mention a few, of course. So we're diving in deep into USG pressuring the uh, list of demands they have for USC, as well as speaking with the chief assistant of USC Department of Public Safety, um, David Carlisle about what DPS will do to control the actual suspension of events this weekend. Yeah, no, it's a big job. What are the biggest struggles you face while reporting on such a sensitive topic? So as a journalist, reporter, anchor, you have to be very compassionate, of course. You have to be able to take into consideration all opinions, all experiences, because they matter. So as a journalist, as a reporter, you have to be not only compassionate, sensitive, but empathetic. You have to feel for these women, not only because you are the person telling the news, but because I am a woman. So, of course, I've seen it happen. Of course, I know girls, that yeah. women that have gone through it. So definitely compassion, empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've been hearing about sexual assault on campus for years now. Even as a freshman, I've heard lots about it. Yeah. Um, now that you've done in-depth reporting, do you think anything is going to change? Hopefully with what USG is pressuring like the, the university to do, which is like suspending the, the events this weekend and making sure fraternities are actually taken, well, go through the consequences, know that they face the facts. I feel like, yes, there will be change and yes, it will take time. But another way, I don't know. I feel like there's also so much to do yet. Like, I feel like we still, all of us know that when a, a girl is being harassed every single day, and it happens to us women every single day. So I f still feel like there's a long way to go, although there are solutions being placed. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I totally agree. Um, thank you so much, Sophia, for coming in. To watch the full See It Live on this issue, tune in to USC Annenberg Media's YouTube channel tonight at 6 p.m. If you or anyone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, you can seek out the sexual assault and survivor support resources offered by USC. This help can be free and confidential as well. Yeah, again, thank you so much, Sophia, for, for talking about such an important issue. For anyone who wants to join the conversation on eradicating the culture of sexual violence and harassment, the Gender Sexuality Studies faculty will host a forum tomorrow. 
Friday, October 29th at noon in the Cactus Garden at 909 West Adams. The rush shooting has shocked the film industry as authorities continue to uncover the unsafe conditions on set. With on-set safety concerns at the forefront of discussion, USC Cinematic Arts school students and faculty have their own thoughts. Reporter Tatum Larson has more on the story. The tragic shooting of 42-year-old cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of Rust has rocked the film industry. Actor Alec Baldwin, who was at the hands of the shooting, recently said that he believed he was handed an unloaded gun, which begs the question of who is responsible for this tragedy. As authorities and the film industry grapple with this, film schools like USC Cinematic Arts School are sharing their reactions to the event as they rear the next generation of filmmakers into the industry. For SEA adjunct professor Naveed Mackler, safety on set is top of mind. We have massive safety protocols in the, in the program. Uh, the students aren't even allowed, to, they have to get everything checked off by the production department. Anything, and they're not allowed to use any weapons. They're, if they have fake guns, they're not allowed to even have moving parts. You can't, it's not even about blanks. They just don't have any moving parts. It's just completely fake guns, right? So everything goes through strict, strict set of uh, bo- check boxes that they have to follow. In addition to following protocols on set, SCA students are expected to complete several safety training seminars so avoidable injuries do not occur. Senior Cinema and Media Studies major Samad McCutcheons says that SCA takes safety so seriously that it could cost you your grade. Once you're in class, it's really, I guess you have to reference the seminar. It's not really the teacher or professor reminding you just because it's up to you to remember the rules um, that you learned during the seminar. While academic pressure is a powerful motivator, first-year graduate student Jenna Rossman says there's no greater risk than the safety of their peers when working with dangerous objects on set. There's something called, it's called hazardous shooting conditions, and it, it covers a lot of different things. It's if you want to have a minor on set, if you, it's if you are dealing with fire or water or anything. Like, you know, having a bathtub in your, in your movie, that's a hazard. Someone drinking water is a hazard. It's a choking hazard. And with what happened on the Rust set, you know, you can't just blame one person. It's everyone's responsibility. And these are real weapons, or they look like real weapons. I don't think we should ever be making anything at the expense of human life. For Annenberg Media, I'm Tatum Larson. Have you ever been down so bad that participating in something like Squid Game sounds like a good idea? If you answered yes, you're not alone. Many USC students are now playing a dating game that also supports a good cause. Lime Cho has the story. If you follow the insanely popular Netflix show Squid Game, seeing people dressed in red jumpsuits with a circle or a square printed on their black masks might have scared you. They're passing out brown cards to invite you to date game. Date Game puts participants through a three-minute audio-first speed dating event. At the end, your profile is revealed and you choose to either match with each other or not. Manji Batmuk helped create this app and organized this event. Basically, what we are trying to do is bring a completely new experience into online dating. We just tripped down dating down to its essence, uh, which is uh, connecting people over live conversations. 
just like this. You have to pay $5 to play this game, and the students who earn the most matches can win up to $5,000. The organizers say half of the money raised will be donated to USC Colleges Against Cancer. USC student Rachel Robertson is with USC Colleges Against Cancer. She was happy to hear from the startup about collaborating on a USC event. Yeah, it was really exciting. Um, we try to like partner with different orgs and do different sponsorships, um, and all the money goes to cancer research and patient support programs. So we're always reaching out to different orgs and like businesses around um, USC. So to be approached by people without having to like uh, put that initial contact in is always really exciting. But this dating game has really nothing to do with Squid Game. It's just using the TV show's popularity to attract students. Again, here's the event organizer, Manji Batmuk. And when we hand out those cards uh, from Squid Game, then, you know, it, 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 they will recognize those cards instead of, you know, just like a regular uh, sandwich shop flyers that people give out. So those are the aspects that we like, uh, that we thought that it would be easy way to grab attention. If they caught your attention and you decided to play, the matches will be made online tomorrow evening. So be ready to log in and meet new people. If you decided not to play, you could still donate to USC Colleges Against Cancer. For Anabag Media, I am Lime Cho. Emmy Award-nominated show Insecure is now airing its last season. The show was co-created by Issa Rae, who is also known for her hit series, Awkward Black Girl. Annenberg Media's Ayana Martinez reports on Insecure's influence and the doors the show has opened for Black creatives. The first episode of the fifth and final season of Insecure aired this past Sunday on HBO. Since its first airing in 2017, Insecure has been praised by fans and critics alike for its portrayal of Black millennial life in Los Angeles. I think the best part about Insecure is that it shows Blackness without overly explaining it. I like how relatable it is, for sure. I'm watching it and I'm like, damn, like I know dudes who are just like that. I think it's a good representation of just black women. It's nice to have content that seems like, oh, it was made with like our generation, like people that look like us in mind when they made the show. Some say that the amount of representation shown in Insecure is reminiscent to that of the 1990s, also known as the golden era of black TV. Shows like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Living Single, and A Different World were wildly popular and offered viewers a glimpse into aspects of black American life. However, that type of representation has been minimized over the years. According to Mickey Turner, an associate professor at USC Annenberg, it's all part of a cycle that needs to be broken. One year you'll have three or four black sitcoms or shows spread across, you know, the four broadcast networks and then some on cable. And then, you know, the next year there's nothing. I think you'll see a lot more in the coming years because there's, you know, there's obviously more of an audience for it now. But until the complexions and genders in the glass offices change, I don't think you're going to see like a, a total 180. We're like at 165 in terms of uh, the evolved evolvement of uh, content. And I think it's still going to take maybe another generation before this is just the norm. 
Insecure has been paving the way for the next generation to do just that. With the show coming to an end, many are wondering what's next for Black creators in Hollywood. Randy Boyd, creator of Inimitable Productions, is grateful for Issa Rae's blueprint. I think what Insecure has done for us is show that there's value in these stories we're telling as Black people and our experiences outside of trauma. And I think now platforms and networks are now waking up to see that. White people, they've had so many opportunities to tell their stories. There's so many sitcoms, so many TV shows, so many movies about the white experience. And we deserve the same opportunity to tell our stories and have our stories and voices heard and to be in control of those uh, stories, too. For now, as fans say goodbye to their favorite awkward black girl, it's the perfect time for mainstream media to say hello to some new creators and their stories. For Annenberg Media, I'm Ayano Martinez. I'm Jack Waterman. We're glad you're with us for From Where We Are. And I'm Julie McGowan. It is 17 minutes past the hour. Coming up, where does Halloween come from? Also, Bitcoin hits high record highs. Created in 2009 by an anonymous individual, Bitcoin was once valued at less than a penny. Just last week, the most well-known cryptocurrency of its time reached an all-time high in valuation at nearly $67,000. Sade Moore has more of the story. To give a little bit of context, in 2010, someone bought two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. And if we were to use the all-time high price for reference, his two pizzas would now be worth more than $620 million today. Approval of the Bitcoin ETF, or Exchange Traded Fund, is a landmark decision that will impact how financial institutions are opening up to the usage of cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency Fund and wallet employee Victoria Maria Steckel sees how this trend plays out firsthand. Decentralized autonomous organizations are the future, and even the governments are getting behind it with GovCoin. So I think everybody should at least put in $50 to $100. Beyond Bitcoin, there are more than 13,000 cryptocurrencies, each with a different following and value. Although Bitcoin is the most popular, other cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, Cardano, Celo Gold, and Shiba are on the rise. Investors like Michael Lipoff, have already invested into the market. Um, I just read up on some articles and saw how, you know, crypto is a new thing. It's rising in popularity um, and that these are like the top five, ten coins to look out for in the near future. So I just took my bet on some of them. But for many, the lack of predictability of the market for buyers and those on the fence creates an anxiety that has caused a lot of skepticism. This has brought up the question, is Bitcoin safe? Or is it a scam? Because unlike a dollar bill, you can't hold one Bitcoin physically. USC instructor and Bitcoin investor Natalie Brunel has weighed these options. I'd rather have a volatile asset that over time continues to go up than a pretty stable asset like the US dollar, which over time has been losing about 90% of its purchasing power. Since Bitcoin is decentralized and controlled by neither governments nor banks, 
people have the freedom of increasing the value of their investment. For Brunel, Bitcoin is the people's money. As cryptocurrency continues to rise in popularity, Bitcoin presents a new way for us to think about money. I can't give financial advice, but my personal belief is that Bitcoin will continue to be adopted. For Annenberg Media, I am Shade Moore. Halloween is coming up this Sunday, and folks are able to head out to trick-or-treat after missing a year due to the pandemic. Usually, Halloween is time for goodies, treats, and ghost stories, but you may be surprised to hear where those traditions came from. Shayla Escadero has this frightful story. It is believed that on Halloween, the veil between the living realm and the dead realm is at its thinnest. So the dead can freely cross into our world, or we may find ourselves wandering into theirs. Many of the traditions associated with Halloween go back to ancient times and can be traced to Ireland or Scotland. People there would leave behind food for ghostly visitors or even set up candles to honor them. The holiday was called Salmon, and it was this night before the new year when the calendar used to be split up by harvest times. The holiday was meant as a comfort because that society was completely dependent on crops and they were about to enter a dark and frigid winter. Folklorist and USC associate professor of anthropology, Toke Thompson has researched Halloween at its roots. It's not a Halloween party without a bonfire in Ireland, even today. And so the word bonfire, it actually, it comes from the word bone, bone fire. And so this is the other thing that would happen when you would slaughter your animals, you have all these bones, and then uh, you would burn them. And this, uh, and the result would be good uh, fertilizer for your soil. So there's this cycle uh, between life and death always going on. This presence of ghosts and supernatural beings is very prevalent in the celebration of Salmon. In Ireland, it's also a time for fairies. However, they're nothing like Tinkerbell. Fairy spirits, these spirits of the dead, um, uh, they were kind of the caretakers of the dead. In Ireland, the word is she, uh, as in banshee. A lot of people have heard of the banshee. This is a fairy woman. And the story, which is still a very active story in Ireland, is that if you see the banshee or hear her cry, she gives this funeral wail as if someone has died. What that means is someone is about to die in your family. So these, these she spirits can, can see into the, the, your own death and your own future. Irish immigrants came to the United States and they brought their folklore with them. And as it was becoming part of American culture, Toke Thompson says it became scary, but in a different way. Uh, you know, it was known sort of as hell night. Um, a lot of times teenagers thought they had like complete license to do whatever they wanted, would play. Uh, the tricks was emphasized, not so much the treats, but the tricks. Various groups in the U.S. continue to come up with their own Halloween traditions. So whether you're getting down with the tricks or the treats, be careful out there. For Annenberg Media, I'm Shayla Escudero. In honor of the upcoming holiday, we have a love letter to horror films written by Nicholas Blodgett, for whom monster movies have done way more than just left him scared.
My beloved monster and me We go everywhere together Wearing a raincoat that has four sleeves Gets us through all kinds of weather The things that go bump in the night The creepy crawlies under your bed The decadent children of the night For lack of a better word, monsters I've had a long history with monsters Ever since I can remember, I've succumbed to the darker side of things. While other children begged and pleaded for their parents to take them to Disneyland, I tried to convince my mother to take me to a cemetery. As all good mothers do, she obliged. Instead of reading Dr. Seuss or Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, I demanded that the masters of the macabre drift me off to sleep. People like Edgar Allan Poe and Stephen King. I even performed Poe's most famous poem, The Raven, at my elementary school talent show. With my mother as the tortured victim of the blasphemous bird, we tramped about the stage, me in my homemade raven outfit, and her swatting at me with a broom. The whole thing oozed cute. I am Dracula. As I grew, my tastes graduated to the monster movies of yesteryear, the universal classics, Dracula, The Wolfman, Frankenstein, and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. I was born with a rare medical condition that primarily affects the eyes. I myself only have one, and I am severely visually impaired in the other. This condition led to years of bullying. It was not lost on me that I and the monsters had something in common, especially Dr. Frankenstein's living corpse. Something about him proved different than the cold calculations of a conniving Count Dracula, or the vicious nature of the voraciously violent Wolfman. He did not seek to destroy the world or terrorize hapless scream queens in lingerie. He just wanted to live and feel accepted, as I did. Frankenstein demonstrated the proverbial folly of man's nature. He destroys what he can't understand. I faced my own unruly mob of torch-bearing villagers, in the form of kids excluding me from their games and whatever else they could. I soon learned that, like Mary Shelley's Prometheus, I was unequivocally different. Another interest of mine has always been comic books. Those four-color floppies of heroic goodness ready to jump right from the rack into your hot little hands. In the otherwise dire age of the 1990s, when comic sales reached an all-time low and Marvel teetered on the edge of bankruptcy, new and edgier costume crusaders began to prowl the panels. Ghost Rider, Venom, and Morbius the Living Vampire. Along with one new vigilante that so captivated my attention, Spawn. Al Simmons. Spawn tells the tale of Al Simmons, a government secret agent, betrayed by his team and left to burn. Simmons makes a contract with a demon so that he may see his family again. As we all know, deals with hell eventually go south. Simmons does return to Earth, but he is hideous, completely crispy and burdened by a living set of clothing. His wife does not welcome him back with loving arms. So he resolves to take revenge on those who birthed him. Through Spawn and other deformed do-gooders, I learned that there existed another role for the outsider. 
that those considered freaks could still have worth, even save the world. My beloved monster and me We go everywhere together For Ampersand Radio, this has been Nicholas Blodgett. Have a happy Halloween. Gets us through all kinds of weather And that's all we have time for today on From Where We Are. Today's show was produced by Polina Cherizova, Wilco Martinez-Cachero, and Jeffrey Lee. Polina Cherizova runs the soundboard, and Derek Renfro composed our theme music. We are streaming live on KXSE. Follow them at kxse.org slash listen. And we're on YouTube at Annenberg Radio News. Subscribe to From Where We Are on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Annenberg Media. If you're looking for more news, be sure to download Annie, Annenberg's news app. I'm Jack Waterman. And I'm Julie McGowan. From all of us at Annenberg Radio, wherever you are, we hope you'll join us again for From From Where Where We Are. Thank you.